2: W-A-B-E in Atlanta, I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. Thank you for listening. The movie Crown Heights is based on a true story that is tragically familiar. Colin Warner, an innocent man who spent 21 years in prison wrongfully convicted of murder, I spoke with Colin Warner, the actor Lakeith Stanfield, who portrays him in the film, and producer Namdi Asimwa, who also played the role of Warner's friend Carl Casey King. We'll listen back to that 2017 interview today. Social justice is at the core of singer-songwriter Billy Bragg's career. He'll tell us about his recent polemic, The Three Dimensions of Freedom. First, the High Museum of Art is set to reopen next month. Rand Suffolk is the executive director of the museum. And he joins us now via Zoom. Rand, welcome back to City Lights.
0: It's always great to be here, Lois. Thank you for inviting me.
2: How did the High decide that July was the time to have visitors return?
0: Well, that's a great question. We've been thinking about this, as you can imagine, for a very long time. We had initially, just as a a placeholder, thought about the possibility and began planning around the possibility of reopening at the beginning of June. And as time progressed, we had also simultaneously been trying to figure out, at least when it came to our summer camp, uh, what we would be doing there. And so candidly, we had half of our education staff working on the development of a virtual summer camp, and the other half of our staff were focused on sort of maintaining our momentum for the possibility of a physical summer camp. And at the end of the day, what we ultimately decided to do was to kind of hopefully from a very measured standpoint and a very responsible standpoint, figure out how to do a soft reopening or reentry into kind of the big revival, so to speak. And so what we've elected to do is on June 8th, we will move forward with our summer camp program, a physical summer camp here on campus. We have fully incorporated all of the governor's uh, mandates regarding summer camp. We've been informed, certainly by the CDC guidelines that are in place about a month ago. The museum became a member of the American Camp Association, and we've also informed all of our policies and procedures around camp with their guidelines. So we ultimately got to a place where we, discern, we determined that we could not only provide a safe space for these kids, uh, but also a really fun experience for them as well and so for that first month from June 8th until July 7th those kids essentially are going to be able to take over the museum uh, will be exclusively and only to campers uh, that gives us the latitude to really effectively space these smaller class sizes out so you'll minimize the mingling and so forth there won't be interaction with the general public right now uh, we want to be sensitive to the fact that Not only are there many parents out there who are dying to have their kids participate in a program, but there are also parents that may have some reticence about whether or not this is the right time to do it from a health standpoint. And so we wanted to make sure that we could open the camp in a way that was very responsible on all accounts. And so then on July 7th, uh, for the next 10 days, from July 7th until the 17th, we are going to open uh, exclusively to members. And then also uh, we're making admission free to any medical professionals or frontline individuals and teachers that want to come back to their museum. And then on July 18th, then uh, we'll be off to the races and we'll be open to the, the, our, the general public at that point. But we, we felt very strongly. And after a lot of, of, of critical thinking about this, we thought that this sort of progressive measured approach back was probably the most responsible and the most sensible, all things considered.
2: Mm. I read that the Association of Art Museum Directors helped connect institutions that shared documents on reopening plans. Were you in consultation with other museums?
0: I'm actually on the board of the Association of Art Museum Directors.
2: I figured that given the prominence of our museum and and your status in the community that it wasn't necessary to ask if you were a, a member.
0: Well, we are the museum is a very proud member of that group and I'm I'm privileged to serve on their board right now. And I think one of The positive byproducts of this whole mess that we've been living through is the fact that there have been multiple weekly, ongoing, consistent uh, Zoom calls, you know, video conference calls with colleagues from all over the country. Um, We've all been, you know, I was telling someone the other day that when it comes to this pandemic and uh, the response to the pandemic. There's a little bit of, you know, one of my favorite, what I love to tell people is sometimes is, you know, I regret to inform you, but you're completely average. <laughs> um, we're all experiencing the exact same thing. And we really have been leaning on each other. And we've also been, I think, taking advantage and, and, and listening to our colleagues in Asia, our colleagues in Europe that are a few months ahead of us in terms of this uh, return and, and learning what we can from them, deconstructing their models to see what makes the most sense for us. And yes, we've developed, uh, probably at this point, it's close to a a 20-page plan that, from an operational standpoint, guides how we will behave uh, and how to protect our staff, uh, but also the steps we will take to make sure that we're creating an environment that is safe as possible for our visitors. It's a living, breathing document. A few weeks ago, it was nine pages long. As I said, now it's probably pushing 20 pages. The more, the closer we get to reopening, I think the more detail that we're, we're building upon it. But we'll be ready.
2: So what safety measures will you implement?
0: Well, I mean, there's a... Stay tuned for that. We will be releasing a whole, you know, we're probably going to do a video. We'll be doing a lot of messaging around this. Um, there'll be... Uh, Obviously, our staff will um, be wearing personal protective gear. Uh, We're moving as close to a touchless transactional model as we can for people. There'll be hand sanitizer everywhere. We're increasing the amount of surface cleaning that we're doing and so forth. But, you know, we've got a series of things that we're going to be doing. and We'll be candid uh, about articulating what those are. But we're also going to be asking for our visitors' help in understanding that this is really a team effort. And if you don't feel well, or if you're sick, or if you, you know, and so forth, please don't come to your museum right now, because there's only so much we can do. My wife, who's brilliant, shared with me an article a couple weeks back from The Atlantic, and it was a professor at Harvard's Medical School, and she was writing about the fact that, and she wasn't pejorative in any way, shape, or form regarding the shutdown and the self-quarantining and so forth. She thought that was very necessary. But she said, as we look to the future, and the fact that there is not, a vaccine ready now and there may not be for many many months you know we have to come to grips with the reality that we'll need to figure out how do we live with the pandemic not necessarily in opposition to it and she very articulately said you know risk is not binary you know there are shades of risk there's a continuum of risk and as a society we need to figure out how do we live with this pandemic right now but do so in a way which as reasonably and as effectively as possible allows us to mitigate the level of risk that's there. And so certainly we can't promise people that come to the museum any more than they can promise you if you go to the supermarket or the bank that you may not come into contact with someone that has the virus. But what we can promise you is a series of steps that we're taking that we believe uh, in the most reasonable fashion demonstrate our commitment to your safety and and the value that we place on our staff safety as well.
2: Will there be a limit to the number of people who can visit the museum at any one time?
0: That's a great question and the answer is yes. Um, We'll be moving, uh, especially at the beginning, to exclusively timed tickets so that we can manage the throughput. We've done a lot of review of our individual spaces to determine what's appropriate in each space to ensure appropriate social distancing. So yes, that is, that will in fact be the case.
2: Mm. Which special exhibitions were cut short during the shutdown?
0: Well, right before the shutdown, we had just opened two wonderful shows. Um, One was on the work of Pajo and the other was a permanent collection exhibition that was, it was entitled The Plot Thickens, which was looking at um, some European uh, graphic art that we put on display. We're still playing with the schedule. Uh, there's a possibility that we'll be able to extend the run of those two. They're both beautiful exhibitions, very proud of them. Uh, we would love to do what we can to make sure that at least for a period of weeks uh, that they would be available to our public. We had to altogether cancel an exhibition entitled Speechless that we had co-organized with the Dallas Museum of Art. Uh, Thankfully, it's a show that had a life at Dallas. People were able to see it. There's a wonderful catalog, Uh, but unfortunately, it was a show where we had reached out to about a half dozen contemporary designers and asked them to radically consider the notion of accessibility uh, within the museum space. And uh, as you can imagine, a large part of that exhibition was really focused upon the experience or the experiential rather. So there was a lot of touching involved. There was, a, you know, and so forth. And um, it just would not have been appropriate uh, for us to have tried to continue with that show given the circumstances. We were very sensitive to the, the reality of that. And so that show was canceled. And otherwise we were, we were kind of fortunate in terms of how things played out. The, the larger concern for us really is this first year that we're back as you can imagine with traveling exhibitions you know we're part of a much larger ecosystem and as i mentioned before all of our colleague institutions are going through the exact same thing that we have and so that exhibition schedule for all of us has, has really been thrown into a little bit of chaos as we all try and figure out how do we either extend shows or have to cancel shows or and so forth so there's been a, we've been swimming through quite a bit of ambiguity but we do anticipate having a solid, probably for sure, from September on, uh, we'll be back in the swing of things in terms of our exhibition schedule. But as we reopen, we really are going to focus almost exclusively on our permanent collection and also some of the the couple, three shows that we may have already up.
2: Well, and the plot thickens is from the permanent collection. Uh, We spoke with... Claudia Einicke, your curator of European art, before that show opened, and it was very exciting to hear about those drawings. Do you have any idea how long Pajo may be on view?
0: At this point, I really can't say. That was a traveling show, and so it's not exclusively what we might want. It really depends on the organizing institution and other commitments that may have been made regarding that exhibition. So again, we're, there's there's a lot of conversation. Everyone is trying to be as sensitive as we can to our sort of collective plight with this, but we're also coming to grips with the reality that this is one big puzzle. And you know, you push one domino and it sets off a whole set of you know problems for the schedule. One this way, and you push another domino and it starts to have reverberations through the rest of the schedule. So it's, it's, it's a challenge.
2: I can imagine. The museum has had some wonderful virtual activities since the doors have been shut. Will the high continue with virtual activities and exhibitions that people can access online?
0: I think so. I think we have to. I mean, I think that one of the things that we became, I think, hopefully very intentional about was that after the first month of being closed, you know, that first month rather, you know, I give, I just want to recognize the incredible commitment and talent of our staff who really threw themselves deeply into the question of what it would mean for us to be a virtual art museum in the temporary uh, span of time that we were going to be closed. But that first month was really an incredible laboratory. We really just started trying to generate as many ideas as we could and try as many things as possible and so forth. And after about a month, I think we started to kind of say, okay, what, what, how can we begin to package them? Some of these things as, as true programs that, you know, have the ability to evolve over time so that six months from now, nine months from now, 12 months from now, how will this program allow have allowed us to adapt and to continue to be interesting and meet a need in the community? I'm really hoping that on the other side of this, you know, we've built some new muscles, so to speak, and that while there may not be, you know, 12 or 15 things that come out of this, there might be five that ultimately become, you know, and certainly in the near term, uh, another layer of engagement for us as an institution.
2: Hmm. Rent, in addition to entrance fees, ticket sales, the museum relies on revenue related to the gift shop and event rentals. What has been the estimated financial loss to the high since the museum shut down in response to COVID-19?
0: I think the best way to kind of underscore that is to say that our fiscal year just ended May 31st. And FY20's budget, so this past year's budget, um, was uh, 20, about $21 million. This year's budget, FY21's budget, is $18 million. So you can see that there's, we're projecting about a $3 million decrease in revenue for the museum. Um, and that's, that's disappointing. That's the fuel for our mission. Those dollars are the fuel for our mission. And so it's going to be a challenge and it's going to be interesting. Uh, but I think we have a good plan. I'm very proud of the fact that uh, this past year, we ended the year with a balanced budget. We did not, if, if you were, uh, you know, we made a huge commitment to our staff and our team. And so if you, were, if you were a part-time regular exempt or non-exempt employee at the museum, if you were, you know, if you were part of our ongoing staff, those people are all still with us. We did not have to reduce headcount in any way during that time period. The equation for FY21 does not include reduction in staff. Now, certainly we've put into place a hiring freeze, we've put into place a salary freeze for people and so forth. We've made difficult decisions in that space, but we're trying to do everything we can to recognize the severity of the situation, but also ensure that this museum continues to, to be of service to our community. That's gonna take a great deal of creativity and commitment on our part, but um, I'm, I'm confident enough in, in what we do and why we do it and who gets it done on our staff to know that the High will, will, will make it through this with the support of our community and donors.
2: Rand Suffolk is the executive director of the High Museum of Art. The museum will reopen next month. And this month, on June 23rd, the High will share a comprehensive plan outlining The most recent tragedies and horrific events of the past several weeks brought to mind the movie Crown Heights. The film is based on the harrowing true story of Colin Warner, who spent 21 years in prison, wrongfully convicted of murder. Warner's best friend, Carl King, devoted his life to proving Colin's innocence. In 2017, I spoke with Colin Warner, the actor Lakeith Stanfield, who portrays him in the film, and producer Nandi Asimboa, who also played the role of Warner's friend Carl Casey King. They were in Atlanta promoting Crown Heights, and joined me in studio. Namdi Asambwa began explaining how the actors prepared before the filming began.
4: So our director, Matt Ruskin, he made it a point that Keith spent time with Colin, I spent time with Carl, um, you know, for a week or so, and just really get into their minds and, you know, what they went through in any sort of way. And Keith and I, we got to spend a little bit of time right before shooting. But the difficult thing for us was, you know, we're playing friends, but we're barely in any scenes together in the film because he's in prison and I'm out. But we we were all able to spend a little bit of time and get closer.
0: Mm.
2: Well, Colin, I know this must have seemed so strange to you and movie stars and prominent director approach you, um, what were some of the things you wanted to impress upon Lakeith and Namdi, along with writer-director Matt Ruskin, as they were making the film?
3: Well, upon meeting Namdi and Lakeith, I just want them to realize that I was an ordinary human being, no fanfare, and went through a situation that I believe a lot of people are going through right now to this day. I'm very proud of the movie and the ability to tell the story which has been going on for now 37 years. And I believe people out here need to hear the story, my story, which is also their story.
2: Yes. You know, as I was watching the film and knowing your story, Nelson Mandela came to mind and I know your prison terms overlapped. Did you think about him?
3: Yes, I think about everybody who were wrongly convicted because I feel that in the land of the free, home of the brave, the greatest country that is being purported to to be, I believe that in the justice system, and there's no fair play. I wasn't given a fair chance of proving myself Everything was taken away from me, and I believe that in itself is a crime.
2: Yes, Lakeith and Namdi, from talking with Colin and your own research, what was the most important thing for you to bring to the screen in each of your roles?
5: I wanted to make sure that I, you know, chiefly remained raw remained it true to the original material. One of the things that Matt Ruskin provided me with in preparation for taking this role on was the original transcripts from the hearings. And, you know, reading these words was an interesting sort of situation uh says so interesting sensation passed over me reading this knowing that this is, these are actually the words that had uh, a person had said to Colin and some of it I couldn't even believe that you know people have come to say this kind of thing but resituating the fact that this story is real in my mind made me realize that I had to try and be real to the material as much as I could so it was important for me to do that and and I didn't want to Approach it in a way where I was attempting to act as if I had spent 20 years in prison um, Because I knew that that was impossible Because that experience is so specific So what I wanted to do was take emotions that I had experienced And sort of expand upon exploring them And apply them to the material And attempt to get across a message that way And also use some of the stories that Colin had told me Some of the family members he had showed me um, some of the experiences that he had, you know, so bravely opened himself up to allowing me to see in order to sort of inform the way in which I would walk into the role. Also, I went around to different prisons and stuff and, and visited a lot of people. But I really just felt it was chiefly important to, to show real raw emotion and not uh, try not to fake it. So I went to extra lengths in order to sort of uh, put myself in a position where I could do that more effectively.
4: And for me it was it was simple as just his uh, Carl's big heart and his oh, yes. and his resiliency you know I, I felt if I could portray that in an authentic way then it'll get his story out. Um, but you know he's a larger than life type of guy and this the film focuses a lot on the most difficult points of his life so it was definitely a challenge but um, you know that was the goal for me
2: Nandi I have to say that, watching the film, I would not have known that you spent most of your career yeah. as a professional athlete, mm-hmm. a phenomenal football player, elite football player. Did you study acting when you were at kid?
4: In college? No, I, I, didn't. I didn't. I didn't. There was a, I don't know, it's Keith, who's also, you know, just and blowing us away and everything he's done. He also didn't study acting, per se. I think it's just there are life experiences that you have to be able to draw from, and I think life is kind of the best acting class that you can take. You know, I think anybody can go into these roles, and if you can tap into some of these experiences, then you'll be able to to bring them out on camera.
2: I think... I can't remember if it was listening to a podcast or reading, but you made the point that your experience was nothing like Collins', but you were arrested for driving while black. (laughs) And and you drew from driving (laughs) your mother's car at that, wasn't it?
4: Yeah, but unfortunately for me, I didn't know that it was registered to her business and not to her. And the cop used that as a way to say that I stole the car.
2: And that LAPD had no problem. Yeah,
4: no problem. And that was it for me.
2: If you are just joining us, I'm speaking with actors Lakeith Stanfield and Namdi Asamwa, along with Colin Warner. We're talking about the film Crown Heights, based on Colin Warner's wrongfully imprisoned term for 21 years. Colin, you have told your story so many times, and in fact, in public radio, we take great pride in the fact that the hour-long episode of This American Life provided the inspiration for the film for Matt Ruskin. And as Lakeith mentioned, the parole hearing scenes were pulled entirely from the transcripts. Does rehashing your story through radio and now through having made this film, does that give you any solace, any consolation?
3: Well, it's kind of therapeutic. It is? Yes, because from since my arrest in April 10, 1980, that was my mission to have my story be heard and hopefully those in situations of power or influence can see what is going on and release me from the um, this terrible ordeal that I was going through. Mm.
2: Casey is such a, an amazing friend. He devoted his life to getting his friend out of jail, and he even became a legal courier and investigator. I mean, that part of the story almost feels like a thriller you know a detective kind of story Mm. did you have any relationships in your own life that drew on to some of those emotions that you put into the trust and dedication and care of someone else nobody
4: Mm, probably i do you know i'm pretty sure i do but there wasn't i didn't draw on any of that I think there was a one thing that I drew on was just the fact that Keith and I didn't get much time to spend before shooting. So there was this longing for, you know, something that you didn't have. Yes. So I think that was one thing that I was able to draw on the fact that I, I didn't know what was going on with him. You know, I think that was a blessing for us. And then the other thing was the experiences that I had growing up that we talked about earlier. I think being able to draw on those and just know that I was fighting for not just Colin, but my younger self. So I could draw on that to, to play the role, too.
2: Although his Colin's experience was just exponentially beyond uh, what, you know, you could being imagine. arrested yeah. for driving while black. But Keith.
5: Yeah. <laughs> it, it's. Um, you know, and, you know, just going back to that other question, it's like there's so much of a natural process that occurs offset oftentimes. Yes. Um, that influences, and no matter what happens, it all influences what you see on the camera. I've learned that. And in, right. in sort of going through the process a, a couple of times now, there are things that I've done to try to make things happen that have either made those things happen or made them not happen. And there have been things that I haven't done that have made things happen or made them not happen. So it's an interesting game to play behind the scenes to create a situation in a space that will affect what happens on camera. And sometimes those things are good, sometimes they're bad. Sometimes they're rivalries, sometimes they're friendships. Sometimes the best rivalries make the best friendships Mm -hmm. and vice versa. So it's an interesting thing navigating that. And being offset, but one thing about you know interacting with Nandi offset, he just has a big heart himself. Hmm. Naturally, he's just a really pleasant guy to be around. <laughs> and sometimes you get in these situations where you meet people like this, and you're just like, "Why are you so nice? I don't understand. <laughs> the world is crazy. How are you so? You know." And uh, and I remember a moment in the story where Colin just you know he he becomes pretty frustrated with his uh. circumstances He's like why are you doing this man why are you still doing this after all this time yeah, i've you know? given
2: up yeah why are you still hanging on
5: right and i remember in that moment thinking about that thinking about how, not, how nice and he is <laughs> you know forthcoming he is and then just thinking about you know that for like oh, why are you so great you know to me <laughs> i don't deserve it you know so
2: well let's keep People have seen you so far in more comedic roles from Atlanta to the incredible Jessica James. Even Get Out had some humor to it, although it was creepy and terrifying, gave me nightmares. This film has real-life horror, the horror that Colin endured. So was portraying Colin, has that been your most challenging role?
5: Oh, God, it's very challenging. It's it's difficult for a person with a mind like mine to compartmentalize experiences in that way, to say what was the most or what was not the most. There's, there's just so many different avenues, and I always try and put my best foot forward so every role is really difficult. It's some avenue or another. But this one in particular was, was... It caused me to have to go to certain parts of my mind that I've never really had to explore, two nights ago I just had another nightmare, I thought I was done with them, Mm. of being pursued by law enforcement, it's such a weird thing because I'm like, I don't know how it creeped into my subconscious in some weird way but, and maybe it's other things tied in with the experience of this but it didn't start happening until I started working on this film where I'd have dreams of being pursued by law enforcement, it's very weird, but I had another one and it felt really real I felt like I'd done something but I didn't know what I'd done and then I'm just running around and people are chasing me and trying to lock me up and put me in this, in this cage. And it's a recurring kind of nightmare that I keep having. And uh, that's kind of weird. It was I said
2: at the end of the film that yeah. you, you mentioned over 120,000 people are still yeah, in prison kind of... for c- crimes they didn't commit it.
5: You know that's a part of the film that really made me irritated is the fact that so many people are still locked up but so many people got got scot-free and got to just live their life and enjoy their life while these people's lives are are ruined. That's a part that really bothers me when it comes up in the film. Mm -hmm.
2: Well the film is not just a cautionary tale it's Mm -hmm. a morality tale and I think that it will have a profound impact on everyone who sees it. One can only hope, Colin, that it inspires more action, resistance, organized yeah. opposition to what is going on in our prison system. Yeah. It has just been a privilege to have you here, Colin thank you. Warner. Thank you. Thank you. Lakeith Stanfield, Namdi Asamwa, your portrayals are magnificent. I bet Colin would even weigh in that your Trinidad dialects
3: are very good. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed.
2: Colin Warner's story was the inspiration for the movie Crown Heights. He was joined by Lakeith Stanfield, who portrays him in the film and producer Namdi Asimwa, who also plays the role of Carl Casey King. Crown Heights can be streamed on Amazon Prime. Punk rock balladeer Billy Bragg is best known for his highly influential music career, as well as his passion for using that music to help bring about social change. Bragg joined me in early May, ahead of his virtual event with Atlanta's Acapella Books, where he discussed his music as well as his books, Roots, Radicals, and Rockers, How Skiffle Changed the World, and his polemic, the three dimensions of freedom. Here's Billy Bragg on why he began writing.
1: Well, I'm really, I'm at heart. People think of me as a songwriter, but I think fundamentally I'm a communicator. If I have an opportunity to communicate, I'm always eager to use that platform. Whether it's writing a song, doing a gig, writing a book, speaking to you and your listeners today, it gives me an opportunity to express my view. And over the years, I've responded to events in the world by writing songs and felt empowered by that. But recent developments in my country and yours particularly have led me to take a much more measured view of uh, how to respond and to try and put my ideas together in, in a book. Not a huge academic study of the nature of freedom, but something a little bit more immediate in the spirit of Tom Paine or George Orwell. And so... When my publishers asked me if I would be interested in writing a pamphlet about something, the the notion of freedom being more than just liberty is something that I've I've spoken about. I've written songs about to try and lay that out in a in a short polemic was quite a quite a challenge. Something for me to do that's outside of my usual experience.
2: It's interesting to think about Tom Paine, George Orwell. Certainly, Tom Paine was. A radical thinker and a revolutionary, you look to unite people. And you mentioned how the three dimensions of freedom is addressed specifically toward the issue of free speech. You said that in order to ensure we all have access to free speech, we must and I'm quoting you here, look beyond the one-dimensional notion of what it means to be free by reconnecting to liberty, to equality, and to accountability. I know this idea of accountability is very important to you. Would you elaborate?
1: Yeah, I think that freedom is a, an abstract idea. I think it's, it's very interesting that in an attempt to define freedom, your founding fathers called upon life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which are in themselves ambiguous ideas that mean different things to different people. So when we imagine ourselves to be free because we're allowed to say whatever we want to say, that doesn't really mean everybody has the opportunity to say what they say. Very often under those circumstances, the loudest voices win out. So firstly, you need the respect that comes with equality liberty empowers you to express your opinion but equality is reciprocal you have to respect the rights of others to also say their piece but even just with those two ideals you could still end up with a shouting match what you need fundamentally to create a space in which everybody can express their opinion in a reasonable way you need accountability you need to be able to hold people to account for their actions and for the opinions that they have expressed. And I think that's a a really crucial three-dimensional space in which not only we want our politicians to work in, but as individuals we should think of when talking to one another on social media.
2: And as you explain it, it seems exquisitely obvious. And yet it's really a moral question, don't you think?
1: It is indeed a moral question, and for a long time, it was in that sphere. But I think one event has brought the issue of accountability front and centre into our public discourse, and that is the election of Donald Trump. Because not all types of freedom are positive. There's a very dangerous kind of freedom, and that is impunity. And I'm afraid President Trump, and in some ways Boris Johnson in my country, have lived their lives without being held responsible for the actions that they've taken and when you have someone like that holding the levers of political power then accountability becomes more than just a moral ideal it becomes a a line which those of us who believe in a free society have to hold that line and say no you must be accountable for your actions you must be accountable for the things that you've said and it's been difficult to do that both with President Trump in your country and with Boris Johnson to some extent in my country.
2: Your message is one of tolerance and you certainly welcome people with varying opinions, different politics. How can music bring about this responsibility associated with
1: it? Well, in order for accountability to happen, people have to be willing to call people out. And music has a role in that. But more importantly, I think, the currency of music, whether it's political music or pop music, any kind of music, the currency is empathy. That's what we're connecting with when a song moves us. We're very fortunate if we're moved by music because we're able to feel empathy for emotions and for individuals, perhaps, that we've never met, emotions that we've never experienced ourselves. That's the power that music has. And at the moment, we live in a time where empathy is derided people who express compassion for others are dismissed as being politically correct and political correctness doesn't even exist it's a trope it's a trope used by reactionaries to police the limits of social change so by bringing people together by listening to music by feeling empathy together we begin to push back against those people who would divide us those people who would single out individuals for blame empathy music brings us together and that's the role it plays it doesn't have the agency to actually make change Lois unfortunately that's been my experience but it is possible to bring people together
2: which of your songs do you think demonstrate those ideas most vividly Billy?
1: I have a song called there is power in a union which talks about organizing in the workplace for rights for wages for people being able to hold the management accountable in the workplace.
6: Lessons of the past world learned with workers' blood. The stakes of the bosses we must pipe for. From the cities and the farmlands to trenches full of mud, War has always been the bosses' wiser.
1: I think this is absolutely crucial, because accountability to me is the the base of all great social movements. You know, if you look in the 20th century, obviously the civil rights movement was about accountability. But if you look at the frontline struggles in the 21st century, Me Too, Black Lives Matter, the environment, the school strikers, they're all attempts to hold those in power to account. They don't have a clear connection, but the thing that does connect them all is accountability. this issue of accountability it's not it's not a left or right issue. It's a, a universal idea. And and we on the we on the left have to be as accountable as anybody else.
2: You took a very bold step when you decided to enter the army when you did. A moment ago you spoke about workers organizing and workers' rights. You grew up in a factory town. At what age did you know that that was not a
1: life for you? Well, actually, quite early. When I was at school, when I was 14 and 15, we were taken to the car factory, the Ford's factory at Dagenham, which we were all being educated to work there. And I, I didn't like it at all. It was much too noisy, much too hot. It seemed like a vision of Hades to me. So I had to get a plan together to escape from that. And my plan was to be in a punk rock band. And when that failed and I faced the possibility of going back to live at my mum's house and having to deal with the reality of growing up in that town, that's when I cashed in my chips and joined the army. Again, to escape having to work in the car factory.
2: And that
1: was a positive experience for you as it turned out. It was, I mean, basically it was a way of erasing my past and starting again. It was a reboot, if you like. And part of the reason was because I wanted to disavow myself of the notion I could ever be a singer-songwriter. And I thought that would probably knock it out of me. But it actually, it <laughs> inspired me more. And I suddenly realised I was I was going to have to get extricate myself from the uh, Royal Armoured Corps and get back into Civvy Street and give it one more go. And at the time, I mean, the British Army is a volunteer army. So you, after basic training, you have the opportunity to leave if you can muster up the funds to leave which I did and it was in the end the army was kind of like a a sabbatical for me and it gave me the courage to step up in front of a hostile audience on my own playing solo which I'd never done before and kind of launched me off into a, a solo career. One with a
2: rather enormous reach we should add and tremendously influential as well. I'm intrigued with Roots, Radicals, and Rockers as well. The subtitle of that is How Skiffle Changed the World. Would you talk about skiffle? And it may even require a definition for some listeners. Definition?
1: I could give you a definition of skiffle, Lois. Skiffle would be British schoolboys playing Lead Belly's repertoire in the mid-1950s. So there was a guy named Lonnie Donigan, an English guy who had a hit with Led Belly's Rock Island Line in 1955.
6: He said tell you I'm gonna on that Rock Island line. Yes, yes, she's a mighty good road. Oh well, the Rock Island line she's a mighty good road. The Rock Island line is a road to ride in the Rock Island line is a mighty good road and if you want, rock well i may be right may be wrong i know you're going to miss me when i'm gone road
1: you went out on tour and when he played liverpool he played a week in liverpool two shows a, a day George Harrison came every night of the week. He was 13. Paul McCartney came one night. He was 14. And John Lennon, we don't know if he came, but he formed his own skiffle band a week after Donegan had played in Liverpool. And skiffle was the music that Donegan played. It was basically African-American roots music with a bit of cowboy music thrown in as well. The reason it's crucial is because it introduces the guitar into British pop up until that point there had been there really had been no guitars so that moment that Donegan comes in and inspires everybody and he does inspire everybody i mean almost every british band of the 1960s began as a skiffle band that schoolboy craze to play leadbelly songs and other blues and uh, jazz and country songs is what acted as a nursery for the british invasion of america in the 1960s in the wake of the beatles
2: Woody Guthrie was an important role model for you. And I read that one of the things you appreciated about him was that even addressing serious issues, there was always a certain hopefulness that he conveyed. And Your song Island of No Return is a good example. Would you talk about the song?
1: It's a a song about, ostensibly about the Falklands War, but it's really about uh, working class lads having no future and finding themselves in a war, having signed up to just be in the army in a time of peace. They suddenly find themselves in a shooting war in the South Atlantic.
6: My foxhole out of sight Digging into dinner On a plate on my knees Smelling of webbing In the morning breeze Fear in my stomach Fear in the sky My dinner with a weary eye After all this It won't be the same Messing around And Salisbury Plain <laughs> The been falling, Move out We're going to a party Way down South me and the to the screen,
1: from to and that happened just a year after i was in the army i could have been there but i didn't want to write in a way that condemned the squaddies who went to fight there because i know they're just a bunch of working-class lads i wanted to make sure that i had some sympathy with them and that i you know expressed that as clearly as i could in the song rather than be dismissive of them I remain, I feel that way continually about people who serve their country, particularly in the ranks. They're doing a very, very important job.
2: Yeah, part of the tragedy of the war in Vietnam and America's role in that war was the student movement. And later in the 60s, the number of protests against the war really did not take into consideration those were sacrificing their lives.
1: Many of them without any other option. Yes. It's not the same now, but when I was joining up, the British army was a sponge of working class lads. You know, if you couldn't get a job, if you were in some dead end town somewhere and you wanted to escape that. I mean, where I grew up was a suburb of London. I can't say I was living in a dead end town. But if you were, you know, in one of the, you know, former industrial cities in the north of England, the army, that's a way out as good as university. And none of those lads imagined they would ever be fighting Argentinians on an island in the South Atlantic.
2: Billy, how have
1: you seen your
2: songwriting and your music career evolve with the times? I mean, do you still consider yourself essentially a punk rocker who's a balladeer?
1: I think the ideas that I got from punk rock, which weren't about haircuts or trousers, are more actually about doing things yourself, self-empowerment, you know, that's what gave me the fire to write a book about skiffle. You know, I just picked it out of the air. It was something I felt strongly about. I was called in to see a publisher about another project. And I said, look, I'm going to send you something next month. I'm going to write 10,000 words. I want you to have a look at it. And I think that, that aspect of punk, that stays with me. That was my defining culture of my youth. And I think a lot of us are defined by a particular culture in our youth. And that was the the culture that defined me, not in a stylistic sense, but much more so in a a practical, ethical sense.
2: Do you think there's another pamphlet in the future?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot of things to to be writing about. There's a lot of issues out there. I mean, the whole justification for writing anything, Lois, creating anything, I would say, whatever kind of creative person you are, the only justification you need is that you are offering with your creation a different perspective on something. Artistic, social, you've just got another idea that you want to write a love song that talks about something that you feel. That aspect of what I do carries on, and I'm always thinking of, what am I going to do next? Punk rock balladeer Billy Bragg, author of Roots,
2: Radicals, and Rockers, How Skiffle Changed the World, and The Three Dimensions of Freedom. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 a.m. to hear about the films of the great director Billy Wilder. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer and I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR.